It was a hot summer night in late June of 1988. The humid, tropical climate of central South Carolina made the air feel heavy and oppressive. 17-year-old Chris Davis was on his way home from a late shift at the diner where he had been working for a few months. He was about halfway home on the outskirts of Bishopville in Lee County when he realized he had a flat tire. He had changed tires before, he was still wide awake. He had no concerns as he stepped out of his vehicle, opened his trunk, and got to work. 15 minutes later, he was basically done. He lowered the car off the jack, checked the lugs one last time, and was dropping the old tire into his trunk when he heard something rustling in the bushes that separated the road from the edge of a large marshland called the Scape Ore Swamp. More on this particular swamp in a minute. The young Mr. Davis, although familiar with the area, was nonetheless startled by the noises. There was always the threat of alligators. He looked into the darkness and then out into the murky vastness of the swamp and saw nothing. Just to be sure, he grabbed a flashlight from his glove box and gave a quick look in the direction of the rustling, straining his eyes until he was suddenly charged by a massive creature exploding from the depths of the swamp. Chris screamed, jumped behind the wheel of his car, and in a scene out of every horror movie you've ever been to, he fumbled with his keys while looking around in expectation of the attack that was definitely imminent. Then he saw it, approaching his car from behind. In the rearview mirror, he clearly saw what he described as a seven-foot creature covered in wet scales, walking upright. It looked like a, well, like a giant lizard. The beast began to attack Chris's car. The horrible sound of tearing metal and breaking glass snapped Chris out of his paralyzed fear state, and he was able to start the car, throw it in gear, and get the hell out of there. But just when he thought he was safe, a horrible jolt shook the entire car, and Chris thought his roof was going to cave in. The monster had hitched a ride, and it seemed to be very angry at his car, for that was where the beast seemed to focus all of its vengeful rage, pounding, clawing, ripping at the metal and chrome, shattering the windows. Chris had a single thought. Get whatever the hell this thing is off my car before it turns its attention on me. He slammed on the brakes and, incredibly, watched as this massive lizard flew through the air and landed on the road 30 feet in front of the car. Now fully illuminated in the light of the car's headlamps, Chris was able to confirm what he had seen earlier but hadn't quite believed. Large, green, scaly and wet, with massive claws on its three-toed feet. Chris stared. He doesn't remember how long, maybe a minute, maybe five seconds. But then the creature came too, and with a start, snapped its sinister gaze directly into Chris's eyes. That was all Chris needed. No hesitation this time, as he put it in gear and sped off into the heat of the southern evening towards home, towards safety. That was the first and only encounter Chris Davis would have with this creature but there would be others. Welcome back to The Devil Within. 
You're listening to The Lizard Man of Lee County. So first off, we're going to be talking about a cryptid. For those unaware, like myself before writing this episode, a cryptid is an animal that is rumored to exist but hasn't been proven to exist. Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, they're cryptids. The possible existence of cryptids and stories of encounters with them span the globe and go back thousands of years. It even spawned a specialized area of study, cryptozoology. Do we have any hard evidence of the existence of any of these creatures? No. But we have tons of first-hand accounts of ordinary people having extraordinary encounters with terrifying beasts that defy explanation. Now, this is my favorite part. A little history of South Carolina and the area where our story takes place. In many ways, the story of South Carolina is the story of America, warts and all. One of the original 13 colonies, South Carolina was very active in the years leading up to the Revolutionary War, going so far as to completely reject British rule and set up a temporary government even before sending delegates to Philadelphia in 1776 and signing the Declaration of Independence. They were then the eighth state to ratify the new constitution in May of 1788, and as the decades passed, their revolutionary spirit never dimmed, as they were the first state to secede in December of 1860 in the gathering storm that would lead to the American Civil War. In April of 1861, Confederate troops attacked Fort Sumter in Charleston, thereby igniting the conflict that would consume the nation for four bloody years. General Sherman of the Union Army, after his successful campaign in sacking Atlanta and his subsequent legendary March to the Sea, set his sights on the capital city of South Carolina, Columbia. Interesting to note General Sherman's orders for his southern campaign. It was basically a scorched earth playbook with some guardrails to keep him in check. It was determined by the Union War Department that the best way to keep Sherman's army supplied was to employ an official strategy of liberal foraging, which basically meant steal shit from civilians. The foraging was mostly at Sherman's discretion if the local civilian population didn't interfere with his troops, they should be left alone. If, however, there was any effort to thwart their movement, whether by road obstructions, bridge burning, sneak attacks from the woods, then all bets were off. Sherman even planned his routes using 1860 census data that told him where livestock populations and harvest centers were located so he could better plan for his resupply. Also, horses, mules, and wagons were only to be confiscated from the rich, who were considered to be hostile towards the Union. Poor farmers needed to keep their beasts of burden for life after the war. Sherman and his troops entered Columbia in mid-February of 1865, and the city surrendered on February 17th. Almost instantly, freed slaves and liberated prisoners of war flooded the city in celebration. And that celebration quickly turned to rioting and looting. It's a subject of fierce debate how the fires started. 
Sherman had been accused of deliberately burning the city, a claim that was denied immediately. Others testified that they saw retreating Confederate soldiers ignite many of the thousands of bales of cotton that dotted the streets of the city. Then the winter winds picked up and fanned the flames that would quickly spread and destroy a full two-thirds of the city. After the Confederacy collapsed in 1865, the South Carolina economy was ruined. The slave labor that worked the vast cotton fields for generations was gone. Many of the urban centers were destroyed. It would be a long way back for the once proud Palmetto State, and the road would be rocky. Segregation, Jim Crow laws. But as we move deeper into the 20th century, in the wake of the Civil Rights Act, South Carolina found her footing and now boasts an economy that includes automotive manufacturing, aerospace, a thriving tourism industry, and a state population of over 5 million residents. That's a long way from when the first European settlers explored the area in 1540 and, unfortunately, introduced diseases that wiped out the local Native American populations. Like I said, the story of America. My love affair with HelloFresh continues. Look, they're America's number one meal kit for a reason. Farm fresh ingredients, pre-portioned, delivered right to your doorstep. No more worrying about what's for dinner or last-minute runs to the market. You'll save time, you'll save money, and you'll have less wasted food. And the biggest plus for me is the time spent with my family in the kitchen. Last weekend, my 11-year-old nephew and I prepared the HelloFresh Monterey Jack Unfried Chicken. First of all, forget about it. Absolutely delicious. But here's the best part. My nephew is an aspiring chef takes it very seriously. He followed the enclosed directions very carefully, preheating the oven, trimming the green beans, crushing the breadcrumbs. But it was over too soon. Uncle B, he said, that's it? Man, that was too easy. I told him not to worry. We could do it again tomorrow night. Go to HelloFresh.com slash DevilWithinFree and use code DevilWithinFree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash DevilWithinFree with code DevilWithinFree. Moving from west to east across the state, South Carolina has six distinct geographic regions, beginning with the extreme western edge of the state that contains a portion of the Blue Ridge Mountains, followed by the Piedmont region. Geographically, a Piedmont is an area at the base of a mountain range. The word's taken from the Italian and translates directly to foothill. Piedmonte. I don't speak Italian. The Piedmont region of South Carolina covers nearly half the state. Then comes a narrow strip of sand running southwest to northeast called the Sandhill region. Millions of years ago, this area was actually the coastline of the state. Next is a similarly narrow region called the Inner Coastal Plain. This region represents the best soil for growing and is where a majority of the cotton production has historically been located. The Outer Coastal Plain comes next. It's a large swath of what was once mostly swampland stretching nearly to the sea. Great efforts were made over the centuries to drain much of this area to make it suitable for farming, but many, many square miles of swampland remain. The last 
and narrowest region in the state is the coastal zone, making up the beautiful beaches and barrier islands that draw tourists from around the world. The state capital, Columbia, is located very nearly in the dead center of the state, officially in the Sandhill region, close to the intercoastal region, which, while far less than the outer coastal, it still has its share of swampland. Much of the state is what is referred to as rural. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, rural is defined as, seriously, not urban, which means they define the urban areas based on population density and whatever is left is called rural. With only a handful of population centers in the state, there are entire realms of forests, swamps, mountains, and river valleys that are rural in every sense of the word. If you start in Columbia and head east, you'll cross out of the Sandhill region and into the inner coastal region. This is where you'll find rural Lee County and the communities of Bishopville and Sumter. It's also where you'll find the Scape Ore Swamp. You may be wondering, wow, that's a weird name for a swamp. You may even be wondering, huh, they actually name swamps? Yes, they do. And yes, it's a weird name. Weirder even than you might think. The name Scape Ore, two words, scape like landscape and ore like iron ore, is actually a strangely abbreviated version of escaped whore. Because, well, at some time in the distant past, there was apparently a lady of the evening who felt obliged to escape from someone or something and headed towards this yet unnamed swamp. There are differing stories about this sex worker on the run, but it was either during the Civil War era, when the local wives had enough of the town madam doing business with their husbands and broke out the torches and pitchforks. I guess it never occurred to them to blame their husbands, but I wasn't there. The other origin story for Escaped Whore Swamp was during the Revolutionary War, when a band of intrepid revolutionaries were able to distract some redcoat officers long enough to get the drop on an entire platoon. Retribution against the ladies was promised to be swift and merciless, and, you guessed it, they escaped into the swamp. Over the years, hopefully out of a sense of decency and not just laziness, the name was culturally abbreviated to Scape Ore Swamp, a name that persists to this day. In February 2008, a man named Bob Rawson was up with the sun and out the door for another workday. When he got to his truck, he stopped short. Took a quick look around to scan for any immediate danger, then slowly returned to his house to call 911. No, no, he told dispatch. No one was injured or in immediate danger, but he had property damage to report, and he and his family would require police protection. They were being stalked by a well-known monster that lived in the swamp that bordered his property. 20 years earlier, when Chris Davis had his run-in with the scape or lizard man, there were additional sightings and attacks on poor, unsuspecting vehicles in the following days. Seriously, it was always a car that got the worst of it with this lizard. And he too called the cops. Based on Chris Davis's report to the police, an investigation ensued, and strange animal tracks 
were actually discovered in the mud near where Chris was changing his tire. Plaster casts were made and sent off to the South Carolina Marine Research Center, but they couldn't identify them. The tracks didn't exist in their database. Their findings were consistent with Chris's original report. The casts were of a clawed, three-toed animal walking on two feet. A few weeks later, investigators caught a break, or so they hoped. They knew that all sightings and vehicle damage was reported along a five-mile stretch of Highway 15, running along the edge of Scape Ore Swamp near Bishopsville. That's the area they had been patrolling, but with no luck. Then they received a call from a man named Chris Orr, or like the hockey player, but not related. Mr. Orr was a member of the U.S. Air Force and was stationed nearby. He claimed to have spotted the lizard man and actually shot at it with his hunting rifle. He even collected blood and tissue samples left behind from where the beast had been injured. There was even a blood trail that he claimed he was able to follow that led him directly to the edge of the swamp where it disappeared into the muck. When the police questioned Mr. Orr at his home, not only did they not believe his story, they actually arrested him for illegal possession of a firearm. Mr. Orr went before the county magistrate and pled guilty to filing a false police report. He claimed he made up the story to keep the legend of the lizard man alive and hopefully jumpstart tourism in the area. Now, as you may have guessed, there is a small but vocal block of believers who claim that Mr. Orr was forced to recant, being threatened with jail time over a trumped-up weapons charge. They couldn't have proof of a lizard man. They needed to quash it. I would say that's not a likely scenario, although the tissue sample he turned over to the forensic lab just so happened to have disappeared, just like the blood trail at the swamp's edge. Fast forward to 2008 and the resurgence of the Lizard Man in Lee County. Mr. Rawson stayed closely involved with the investigation. He was genuinely concerned for his family's well-being and depended on a reliable vehicle for his work. He couldn't have a swamp monster messing with his ride every day. Investigators did their thing, documented all the damage to the truck. They measured the length of claw marks the depth of punctures to the metal, even a DNA tissue sample from the front grill. All this was sent to the forensics lab, now 20 years more advanced than the last time they got a tranche of evidence related to the lizard man. And this time, the findings came back, wrapped in a really big question mark, because they seemed to point in two different directions. First, the physical damage was obviously done by something very large, something very strong, with a powerful jaw that had a mouthful of long, razor-sharp teeth. Likewise, the claws must be ferocious, both in length and ripping power. And the appendages they must be attached to pointed to a creature with strength comparable to a silverback gorilla. But then the DNA sample returned a curious match. Coyote. Hardly the symbol of strength and ferocity in the animal world. So what gives? When the police shared their findings with Mr. Rawson, surprisingly, they found their answer. Faced with the confusing forensic data, Mr. Rawson nodded his head, told the cops to follow him, 
to a remote section of his property. What Mr. Rawson had discovered the previous day made the findings from the forensics lab come a little bit into focus. At the edge of his property, a killing field of sorts had been discovered, covering roughly a 10-square-yard area where the remains of half-eaten corpses of various domesticated animals, deer, a few larger farm animals, and a coyote. What Mr. Rawson was able to deduce and what the police agreed with was this. Whatever attacked his truck had recently eaten a portion of that coyote and then must have transferred the DNA of the coyote to the car during the attack later in the evening. Okay, so when an obvious explanation can't be found, it's time to look for an unconventional answer. And that's what investigators in South Carolina did. By now, the spring of 2008, the story had entered the mainstream. Even late-night hosts included it in their evening monologues. But today, there is a huge story out of South Carolina. It is the re-emergence of the legendary Bishopville Lizard Man. Take a look. Seven feet tall, scales, red eyes, and a massive tail. That's the description of the ever-elusive Lizard Man. Now, some people claim they have photographic proof he exists. Now, wait, hold on. He's seven feet tall and has red eyes. Guys, I think Lizard Man is just Snoop Dogg. But what did the authorities come up with? Well, as you might have guessed, nothing concrete. But they did develop a theory. The physical evidence, spanning two decades, collected over two separate attacks on vehicles, told them they were dealing with an incredibly strong, incredibly heavy, three-toed, clawed creature that walked on two feet. They had one more or less reliable eyewitness that swore it had scales and looked like a giant lizard. Eyewitness testimony is historically incredibly unreliable, as we've explored several times in past episodes, including recently in Season 3. But, allowing for a moment the testimony of Chris Davis from 1988 to be factored into the mix... The new theory pointed to a dinosaur, specifically the Carnifex carolinensis, or the Carolina Butcher. The Carnifex carolinensis is a well-researched, documented, nine-foot-long, land-dwelling crocodile morph that roamed what's now the Carolinas in the late Triassic period. Both of the known fossilized specimens were found in the coastal plain regions of South Carolina. This thing is strange looking and utterly terrifying. Imagine a giant alligator that suddenly grew legs that were three times as long and massively muscled, almost like T-Rex legs. Now this thing can walk upright, can run and chase prey. It can claw the shit out of things and has enough biting power to turn a bowling ball into dust. They also went extinct more than 200 million years ago. So again, what gives? Local paleontologists, as well as one tenured naturalist at the University of South Carolina, agree that the tracks left behind look exactly like what a bipedal dinosaur would leave behind. Now, they stop short of saying it was a bipedal dinosaur that left these tracks. 
they really couldn't come out and say that and hope to be taken seriously at work on Monday. But they also didn't offer any other explanation. So what do you think? Thanks for listening to The Devil Within. I appreciate you spending some time with me today. I know I've threatened it a few times, but we're closer and closer to my social media being up and running. So if you want to give me a preemptive follow at The Devil Within Pod on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and wherever else, I would appreciate it. Please make sure that you're following the show so you never miss an episode. And if you feel like rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, that would help a lot. Till next time, stay safe out there. The Devil Within is a Cloud 10 Media production, recorded live at Bel Air Studios in Los Angeles, California. Written and produced by Brandon Morgan. Executive produced by Sim Sarna. Our post-production supervisor is Bruce Whitkin, who also provided original music for this episode. For The Devil Within, I'm your host, Brandon Morgan. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.